Down to Business with Bobby Kerr. Brought to you by Bank of Ireland on News Talk. Now, you're very welcome back to the second hour of Down to Business. Bobby here with you all the way till one o'clock. I'm bringing you a special show all the way from Singapore, where we've been all week as part of the EY Entrepreneur of the Year CEO retreat. Loads more to bring in this hour, including a chat with the man who saw future in Indian wine. We talked to some of this year's finalists who are all using social media to power their business. So let's get back into it and bring you my visit to perhaps the most famous premises in Singapore. Now, perhaps the most iconic building to Singapore is Raffles Hotel. Uh, The world-famous hotel was built in 1887 and has been enthralling sightseers and writers and artists ever since. And, of course, it's home to the world-famous Singapore Sling and more of that later. But I'm going to learn a little bit more about this place. I'm delighted to be joined by Linu Tarani from the marketing team here at Raffles Hotel. Uh, Linu, you're very welcome to the programme. Thank you so much. A pleasure to be talking to you today. And uh, absolutely what you have said is uh, correct. This is uh, the most iconic building in Singapore and I dare say around the world as well. <laughs> so uh, tell us a little bit about the history of the, of the hotel. I know it was a boarding school. It's gone bust a couple of times. There was great colour all through the generations. Give us a sense of the history of this place. Yes, so the Raffles Hotel actually started uh, as a 10-room bungalow back in 1887. So this year we're celebrating 136 years of our lovely heritage and uh, started off uh, with only 10 uh, hotel rooms uh, by the Saki's brothers who actually came in uh, from Penang and opened up Raffles Hotel uh, because travel was so much more prevalent during those years with the opening of the Suez Canal and and a lot more travel routes uh, coming into Singapore. So they saw this as a huge opportunity for them to to settle some roots here and the hotel continued to expand over the next few years and uh, became what it is today um, through the early 1900s. Right. It was occupied by the Japanese during the war and I'm told that the staff buried the silver to be repurposed and brought back into service after the war had ended. Yes, so the staff were actually very protective of uh, some of the assets that we owned and this includes a silver beef wagon that they actually buried in the palm court uh, when the Japanese occupied Singapore. And uh, once uh, the Japanese left the hotel, they unearthed this silver beef wagon and we continue to use it in the hotel uh, as part of the service right up till today. Wow, wow. There was also some interesting guests. Uh, we, we talked about, you know, Joseph Conrad, Charlie Chaplin, Somerset Maughan, but um, there's, there was an incident with a python, a wild boar, and even an escaped tiger. Tell us about that. Yes, so the hotel is not just home to famous personalities, but also a few of our friends from the wild. So you're absolutely right. We've had got visits from a python, a wild boar, and our doorman had to welcome them all. And uh, the famous tiger story is, of course, uh, where the uh, last uh, tiger was actually seen at Raffles Hotel uh, back in uh, 1892, and uh, who actually uh, tried to hide from us under the bar and billiard room 
at the time, but uh, we had to, of course, capture him and it's become a legend since then. Wow, wow. And the, the hotel today seems to have been completely redeveloped. A lot of the original features have been reinstalled, but it's a massive site. There's all retail, there's different uh, squares. It's, it's from, from very humble beginnings. It's quite a property today, isn't it? Yes, from the 10-room bungalow, we've actually involved into a whole city block, so comprising not just suites, but uh, 10 different restaurants and bars. We have a whole shopping arcade, we have our own spa, and of course, a lot of the hotel is occupied by very lush gardens, so a lot of our guests love to just come in, take yeah. a walk, and, and have a coffee by the veranda as well. Now, um, I'm told that you can't visit Raffles Hotel in Singapore without having the signature drink, which is? Uh, you're definitely referring to the Singapore Sling. Right. Yes. So maybe we might go now. I know it's early at home in Ireland now, but just to assure listeners that it's, it's well into the evening here, so we won't be doing anything we shouldn't be doing. As they say, it's 5 p.m. somewhere in the world, so a Singapore Sling is definitely uh, something you have to have at the original place where it was created more than 100 years ago. So now we're at the world-famous Long Bar, and we have one of our leading bartenders uh, managing the space to tell you a little bit about what goes into the Singapore Sling. I'm a long, uh, bartender in Long so let me tell you uh, the short story of uh, Singapore Sling first. So basically Singapore Sling is created for the ladies back days because ladies back days not allowed to drink alcohol in public. So this great master Nyang Tong Boon, the creator of Singapore Sling, he created a drink looks like pinkish in color, fruit punch, so ladies can consume alcohol in public. Okay, so we've got Fruit punch, what other what alcohol? So basically, Singapore Sling is a gin-based cocktail. Yeah. So in Long Bar, we use London dry gin. We have cherry liqueur, orange liqueur, Dom is a herbal liqueur, pineapple juice, lime juice, grenadine syrup, and dash of bitters. Well, listen, thank you very much for articulating with such skill what goes into no the problem, drink. All yeah. we got to do now is just taste one. Thank you very All much. All right, enjoy. Cheers. Okay, Lino, here goes. Uh, cheers, as you say, it's five o'clock somewhere. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Very refreshing. And you guess what, folks? You wouldn't even know it was a drink. There you go. <laughs> Singapore Sling from the Long Bar at Raffles Hotel. Thanks very much for showing us around. Our pleasure. Thank you so much for being here. That was me there in the famous Raffles Hotel in Singapore, where I've been all week. Uh, for the EY Entrepreneur of the Year annual CEO retreat. I've been meeting some famous business minds from this part of the world. I want to bring you something from my chat from Kenneth Goh now. He's a professor of strategy and entrepreneurship at the Singapore Management University. Here he is talking about how he engages with his young students and tries to teach in some unusual ways. So one of the defining features of education at SMU is our interactive pedagogy. So it's so we like to think of ourselves as um, just doing things differently in the classroom as well. And I think that translates into um, and the way you engage with students. Um, you're not using technology for the sake of technology, but it's also this philosophy of education where you are engaging people um, or you're engaging your audience or your class um, at their level. Yeah. Um, so if they communicate, in, they're used to commu communicating in a certain way, um, the question for us is how do we um, engage with them in that manner as well? 
um, because that's how learning how that's that's how they're familiar with uh, uh, learning. So if you think about instead of running classes in the traditional way, can we use TikTok? Can we use Instagram? Um, a, a lot of I, I see a lot of material being, uh, or I, I see social media platforms like LinkedIn being woven into the the, the, the classroom experience as well, right? So it becomes it's not just about the interactive pedagogy in the class as well, but also thinking more broadly about how we um, interact uh, using uh, technology today. And the goal really is to enhance learning um, and not just to ram information down, but yeah. to learn through uh, discourse and conversation and uh, experience as well. And do you think students are the same as they always were, that they they leave it to the, mass, to the last minute to study for the exam. Is that changed? Uh, does, has technology changed that in any way? You know, the, the bit about students keeping learning to the last minute, is that a function of the students or is that a function of the environment that we set up for them? I see it as the latter because you know, in my role, you know, I'm designing programs and courses and the structure of... Uh, of, 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 of a 12-week-long program, right? If I want the exams at the end, that's my decision to make. So it's not the students who yeah. are the ones, um, but it's really a function of, our, uh, um, of how things are structured, right? Going back to the whole principle around design. Um, and so I think that change comes from us. Do we as educators, um, are we open to embracing that technology? Are we open to allowing that change to take place. And so what I do is I recognize that not all learning happens when I speak, and not all learning happens in the classroom, right? Some of it happens through conversations like this, like what we're having, yeah. um, but a lot of the learning happens, or a lot of information is being absorbed as well through the mobile phones. And if we don't adapt, if we don't embrace that technology, um, that's how we become outdated. That was Professor Kenneth Go there chatting to me from Singapore Management University. Up next, businesses that are driven by social media. Now, as I've told you many times in this show, we're here in Singapore for the EY Entrepreneur of the Year at the annual CEO retreat, and as well as hearing some of the, business, the interesting business minds here, we also wanted to catch up with some of this year's finalists. And the finalists this year have had a number of businesses that use social media uh, as their central bank for driving their business. And it seems that many young entrepreneurs are using social media to power what they do. So to chat to three of these businesses and finalists, I'm delighted to welcome to the programme Lorraine Haskin of the Gourmet Food Parlour. Caroline Dunlee is from Core Optimization, And Fiona Parfi is from a company called Riley. So you're all very welcome to the programme now. So we'll start with you, Fiona. Uh, Tell us all about Riley. Uh, Tell us how the business started and indeed your own role in it. Absolutely. So I started Riley with two friends, Anya and Lauren, just two years ago. We launched from a garage in West Cork. Um, At Riley, we're on a mission to demystify female health, which is a crucial area for, for humankind that has been massively underserved to date. So we started with disrupting the period care market, which was a very stale industry that was ripe for disruption. And there was, I suppose, a growing customer demand for a more transparent supply chain and healthier product options, which was being ignored. And so we got to work to change that. And we create 100% organic tampons and pads that are better for our bodies and better for our planet. Okay. 
All right, great idea. And again, as you say, a very sleeping market that needed a bit of a bit of a shake up, and that's what you did with your two colleagues. So well done. Let's talk to uh, Caroline Dunley now from Core Optimization. Caroline, um, we're going to be talking about social media in a, in a minute, but I know that this is the cornerstone of your business. Indeed it is. Um, thanks a million, Bobby. Uh, yeah, so I am the co-founder and CEO of Core Optimization. We're a digital performance and digital transformation agency, and we're based in Clare. Um, I set the business up in 2015. Um, I suppose you know, seeing that there was a need across all different sectors to uh, online marketing was growing, online spend was growing. Um, so we very much focus on business to help them grow their business online. So looking at strategic development, um, working across all the platforms, all the social media platforms, the um, Google, uh, we're a Google Premier Partner, we work with Meta, um, and so it's really just about driving the right type of business at a very profitable ROI for our clients. Am I right in saying that your background was in hospitality? Yeah, well, I worked for a tech company, Bobby, absolutely. Um, yeah. And that's where I actually got into the whole digital marketing scene, um, where they provided software for hotels. And a big part of that was the web development and also the digital marketing. So I fell in love with the industry, to be honest, first, and yeah. the digital marketing second. Um, but our, And we started out in hospitality as our own business as core, but we very much diversified our portfolio across retail, B2B, um, which was really great, obviously, over the last couple of years with COVID, we really needed to. Great. We'll be back to you in a second. Lorraine Eskin of the Gourmet Food Parlour, you're very welcome to the programme. Again, a, a, an exciting business. You opened recently in your hometown, uh, which is always nice to do. Uh, so tell us a bit about the Gourmet Food Parlour. Thanks, Bobby, and it's great to be here. So um, I am the founder and CEO of Gourmet Food Parlour, and Gourmet Food Parlour is a restaurant business. Um, it's a catering and event business. Um, we also have um, an online gifting company as well called Gourmet Gifts. But uh, Gourmet Food Parlour is open seven days a week. Um, we operate for breakfast, brunch, lunch and dinner across our six restaurants, four in Dublin, one in Galway and one in recently in Dunshockland County Meath. Um, we are also Ireland's number one sports caterer and we cater for elite sports teams and individual sports people who are on a nutritic journey for, to reach their goals. Uh, we have lots of corporate caterers as well, corporate catering clients and um, we have lots of key kiosks as well in several uh, businesses throughout Dublin. It's quite a diverse business and again it started in one place. Now while all the businesses are somewhat related it's quite a diverse portfolio of different operations. Absolutely. And I think it, it all just transpired very naturally because I opened a 25-seater cafe, I always say off a side street, off a side street in Dunleary because it was the only unit where a landlord would actually say, yes, you can have this, you can rent this unit. So it started so small. But instantly I knew there was a demand for the brand. I instantly could see that. And that sparked even more inspiration in me to take that brand and to, and to move it forward. And, you know, our philosophy is to serve great food in a really good environment with super customer service. And that's our philosophy as a business. So we, we keep going. Okay, so I said I wanted to talk a little bit about social media to, to uh, my three guests here today. Just to remind you, Lorraine Haskin from the Gourmet Food Parlour, Caroline Dunley from Core Optimization, and Fiona Parfi from Riley. So back to you, Fiona, in terms of 
social media? Firstly, how do you embrace it in your business? And secondly, how important is it in terms of generating sales and profitability? Yeah, so social media has been an integral part in growing our brand and our community since before we even launched. So we built up an audience across our Instagram uh, platform and TikTok prior to launching so that right away we would have an engaged community. And it's not just for us in uh, for driving sales, which it absolutely does do, but it's also about engaging with our community and partaking in market research in real time with our customers. So we, I suppose, use social media not only to market and to sell, but to really hear what our customers want to see next, what would they prefer that we do differently. We even use it as a customer service channel ahead of the likes of email. So it's been absolutely fantastic for us. And I suppose our followers really feel like they're on the startup journey with us. Yeah. Um, Back over to you, Caroline. Is there there are many platforms and some seem to come in and out of vogue yes. and I, what I was curious to ask you was is there a particular f- platform that suits a particular business if we take LinkedIn versus Instagram mm. we hear a lot about TikTok so w- what's your advice to people on if they say I can't do them all which one is for me yeah I, I think the most important thing is every business is different. Your your customer base is different, um, and it's it, like if you're a B two B, you're really probably not going to have as much of a draw on a, a platform like maybe Instagram or yeah. TikTok as much as you will on LinkedIn. So it is about understanding where the audience is at. You've got to do your research. I think the most important thing in whether your whole digital marketing is about your strategy development at the start and then you identify the platforms that are going to work best for you. You know, it's it's whether you're going to be looking to get awareness of your brand, it's hugely important from a brand perspective. But also I think social media is very much a two-way to exactly like Fiona said, it's a two-way process, and it's 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 a community and it's an, an engaging platform. And you, there's an awful lot that you can actually generate from social media platforms um, around from an ROI perspective. But you have to have the right metrics in place. I think that's one of the most important yeah. things. A lot of businesses today, whether you're a B2B business or whether you're a, a retail business, they don't actually have the right metrics set up in place to be able to understand the ROI and to be able to understand, I suppose, gather that data. Today, social media, digital marketing is all about understanding the insights from these tools to be able to make data-driven decisions. Yeah, very well said. Um, Back to you, Lorraine. Um, Fiona mentioned the use of customer service there. The speed at which social media operates, like, you know, God forbid you could get a complaint in a restaurant as, as almost as it's happening live and it's there out to the public, uh, everybody knows about it and it becomes a problem that one needs to contain. So does the speed of any of the platforms scare you in any way? You know, look, at it, it's, as Caroline said, you know, every business is different, but I'm in hospitality and I'm in the restaurant business. So customer service has to be at the forefront of everything that we do. And the structure that I've set up within the business is very, very strong. So I have a team of four working in my marketing department and they work seven days a week on customer service, social media, PR, and they drive all, all of that through the business. So, for example, if customer feedback if we get customer feedback 
literally to the hour, we'll know about it and we'll deal with it straight away. Yeah. Because that is very important for us because, you know, we are there are going to be mistakes that have been made, but it's how you deal with those mistakes that really show the strength of who you are as a business person and how much we care about our business because we love it so much. We don't want people to complain, but if they do, we need to know about it so that we can work it and make sure it doesn't happen again. So I embrace it, honestly, because information is key, Bobby, and it's very important for us to be at the top of our game. No, absolutely. Uh, just in terms of, uh, Fiona, you talk about the community that you've built. What about sincerity and integrity? I often see things on social media that come across as insincere to me. And I think then if you, if you spot an insincerity, I think you, you think differently about that business. 100% and I think what we've learned as well is actually the more polished and refined you are actually doesn't mean that that will translate on social media so the more authentic that we are in terms of showing ourselves as founders or wins and opportunities but also our struggles has really resonated with people and there's you know one of our key differentiators versus the other mainstream period care brands is that we are a founder-led business that cares about our customers. And the more that we put ourselves out there and showcase our story, we see our engagement going up and up. Yeah. So it's just, it's part of the journey. And it's it's fun as well, because, you know, I suppose you're getting, you know, people are getting to know you and really becoming part of our brand with us, which is really exciting. Um, I, I, I just wanted to, to, co to come back to Caroline as well about, you know, when, when we think, about the power of the social media now within a business. Mm. Like, you know, we think about the accounts, we think about paying the wages. Social media has probably moved to a, a much more central place in, in lots of businesses in more recent times. With, without a doubt, I think actually, um, I would say even digital sits at the centre of a lot of businesses now and they're looking at digital in terms of, okay, well, you know, and building their strategy even out from that. Um, I think within the last couple of months we've seen social media actually out take search which is the first time that's ever happened so it's just slightly over um, on search which is a huge change in terms of customer and buyer behavior um, and you're seeing that through all through all the profiles like TikTok is the fastest growing um, and, and the highest engagement in there so um, it, it's really having a big impact on businesses in terms of their approach and how they think of it and it isn't just e-commerce businesses I think that's really important yeah. to say it's all businesses yeah. I don't think you know before it was kind of a nice to have now it's kind of an economic imperative to have your social media strategy and to have that laid out in front of you you know so definitely it's really important. Lorraine just to you in terms of being the owner of the business uh, you know and often the owner may not be the best person on social media how important is it to delegate the technical piece to somebody who is good at it? Well, I, I surround myself with people who are way better than me <laughs> at social media, Bobby. So I am very happy, you know, to, to, to delegate that. <laughs> I'm very happy to delegate that to the team. And we're very focused on our, on our social media strategy and the team will plan weeks and months in advance about the, about the stories that we need to tell, about the pockets of information that we want the customer to know. But we also want to have fun. We, we want to show the personality behind the brand. And we think that is so important as well. We want people to know who's behind Gourmet Food Parlour and what, and what, what, what we're doing. Right. Last word to you, Fiona. If you look at the future of the business now with your two colleagues, is social media going to be a central platform to growing it, to you know, bringing you to the next level, to getting on investors or whatever it is your plans are? 
Yeah, it has been to date and it definitely will continue to be. So I suppose from a direct consumer's perspective, TikTok is the growing channel, as Caroline mentioned, um, but Instagram still plays a key role. But we also predominantly, I suppose, operate B2B. So we supply corporate office spaces and hospitality groups with product. And LinkedIn has actually been a really good tool for us as well. So we'll continue to use that to our advantage. Well, it's been a true revelation to talk to my three guests here, all finalists in the EY Entrepreneur. Uh, well, a finalist and an alumni, sorry. My, <laughs> my bad. Uh, but two finalists and one former finalist and, and somebody who did very well in the competition. Thank uh, so thank you for joining us. Thanks for your thoughts on this because I think it really is good to hear your views because you're right at the cold face of what's happening on social media. So thank you all very much. Thanks, Thanks Bobby. Bobby. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now, Bobby here, coming to you from Singapore, continuing now with a very interesting chat with a man who helped turn an Indian vineyard into a global brand. Have a listen to this. Now, I'm delighted to welcome to the program uh, Mr. Deepak uh, Shandapuri from DSG Consumer Partners. You're very welcome to the program, Deepak. Thanks for joining us. Very happy to be here. Thank you. Now, you you gave us a very interesting talk this morning, Deepak. Firstly, maybe tell us a little bit about you and indeed your business. Um, You know, I run a venture capital fund investing only in consumer brands. So the hypothesis is that the consumers of today, uh, the people who are 18 to 35, have different needs, very different sort of factors they take into account when buying a product or a service. And the brands that you and I grew up with over the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years that our parents buy, that we may continue to buy, are not the brands that an 18-year-old buys. So just think about what you do when you go into an Asda or a Tesco or an Aldi. You know, it used to be Kit Kat and it used to be Cadbury. It used to be McVitie's. Uh, that's being splintered and fragmented and consumers are just demanding more and want brands with a mission who speak to them was sustainable, or whatever the mission is, right? So our job is to sort of find those niches and find those founders building those brands, um, which a consumer of tomorrow should be buying or wants to buy today. It's a very interesting philosophy, particularly when you talk about things like, you know, frequency of purchase is a key factor. So you only want to be in a brand that somebody is going to repeatedly buy you also want to be in a place or with a brand that can be sold to one of the big boys. Is, are they two of, the, two of the key pillars? Yes, it's a key pillar for us as a firm. It's not the only thing that works. It's we go into a brand. So different, different investors come in at different points in the journey. Uh, when you go into a, to, a, to a company before we've launched the product, so you've got to think about the category. You've got to work with the founder to create the liquid or whatever's in, in the box or the packet. Uh, and then you take it to focus groups. Focus groups don't always tell you what they should tell you. Yeah. Uh, and they say it's amazing, it's great, or change this, you do. And then you take it to market. So we then take it to a as small a pilot as we can. So it, it might not even be citywide, it might be neighborhood-wide. And depending on the product itself, and depending on the frequency of purchase, we keep the sort of pilot on so that we can gauge three things. Is the consumer buying it? Uh, is he repeating it? If, think of consumer goods. First, you need to create awareness. This brand exists. Uh, then you need to create trial. Yeah. So, okay, this is a yummy drink. Oh, I'm going to buy it. And then you need repeats. That's the real yeah. uh, test. So we, we, we like to take it to market. 
Uh, and why we like regular frequency is that you get the feedback done in a month instead of six months. If something is bought every week, yeah. like a coffee or a soft drink or, or a candy bar, you know if it's moving or not. You speak to the consumer. And as important is the reception from the retailer. So the retailer is the guy who sees the consumer every day. And keep, keep in mind, in this part of the world, most of the shops aren't supermarkets. These mom and pop corner shops where you can speak to the store owner. And you can ask him, you know, this, this chocolate, is it selling? He says, well, not really. It's selling because you give a one for one. But if it was regular price, no one's going to buy it. And the guys who are buying it aren't repeating. You know yeah. what? They, they try your product. And the next time they come back, they switch back to what they used to buy. So that's the feedback we want. And, and that's why we like things with sort of uh, higher frequency. Uh, and as, as an investor, my job is to build brands. Um, we tend to stay with the business for eight to 10 years. Right. Then, I, then I need to sell the business. So none of the brands will go public during my tenure as an investor. So my job is to sort of build products that I think one of the large global or domestic consumer goods companies would want to buy. So that's why I go out and I speak to all of them on a regular basis saying, you know, where do you see a gap? Where are you? And they said, Deepak, we are 100 years old. We, we, don't, we don't have a gap. We do everything. And we've got a lab and we've got 10,000 people. I'm like, okay, let's simplify the question. Where have you lost market share? Oh, yes, yes. Our, our biscuits are losing market share or our coffee. You know, we are the world's biggest coffee company, but it's a, it's a brand called Blue Bottle, and it charges 2x of what we're charging. It's not as good, but we are losing market share. Yeah. I said, what are you going to do about it? They're like, we'll probably acquire it. So that's the philosophy we use as a fund. Is one of your challenges, given your philosophy, is one of your challenges, you know, that you're up against the big boys, that you're up against guys with deep pockets, and you're trying to break into this sector. Maybe ultimately they're going to be your your buyer, yep. but the challenge, you know, in the interim is to compete against these brands. It is to compete. The David and Goliath battle is real, um, but you can't get around that because to convince them to buy you, you've got to beat them at, at, at a particular scale. So. So once in a while, you'll be lucky and you invest in a category that is nascent and you own the category, so there's no competition. But in almost any CPG category, the incumbents are there. You yeah. might have a variation of the product yeah. or more often you have a, a different story. You are buying this brand because it's a B Corp, it's sustainable, we use no plastic, we use only metal and glass. You have something that hooks a consumer. Yeah. So the hook is different for categories and geographies. But that's what we do. We do compete, and, and, and the companies who end up buying us tend to be the companies who've lost market share to you. And once in a while, it's a company that wants to enter the category for the first time. Right. But you will have to compete with someone before you get there. And do you get a better price, ultimately, of a big boy who's lost market share than somebody who wants to? Like, because clearly, the one that's lost market share, I'd say nine times out of ten, they have the resources to buy. They do. I think it's too early to say the data's not there. Um, in the best companies, and best defined as good margins, growing strongly, taking market share away, and you're probably number one, number two, number three in the category. What tends to happen is when you're ready to sell and the strategics show up and saying, you know, we'll, we'll pay a hundred million for you, the financial guys show up saying, you know what, you've grown it from one to fifty, 
before you sell it to the big boys, we'll buy it off you. We'll yeah. take it for 50 to 150, and we'll sell it to them for 5x, right? So, so that's what's playing out. So some of, our, some of our best companies which have attracted strategic interests will probably end up in the hands of a large financial investor like a Bain Capital or a TPG because they see the opportunity of sort of growing it further. Right. Finally, uh, Deepak, maybe tell us a little bit about the story of Sula Wine that you were involved in. I think Sula's an interesting story. So I, it was the first consumer deal I did in India. So I was living in London in those days, uh, traveling to India sort of monthly on work, and saw this huge emerging consumer class. Um, and India was at a point where they were starting to believe we are a big nation, which they are, we are a smart nation, which they are. And they started to believe that we could make the best products in the world. We don't have to import everything. And I happened to have met Rajiv Salman, the, the founder of Sula, about four to five years prior to my investment. I met him when he had just started Sula, uh, but hadn't launched the product. Right. So he, he, he was born and brought up in, 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 in Bombay. He's Maharashtrian, he's local. Uh, smart enough, got to Stanford, studied engineering at Stanford while, while living in, in Silicon Valley, he discovered the wine country. And he came back, he said, you know what? Nasik, uh, near Bombay, one of the world's biggest wine growing regions, we don't grow grape wines. Uh, Indians are gonna get rich, uh, they're gonna drink alcohol. There isn't any good wine in India. The competition was there, it was awful. Everything else is imported with crazy import duties. He said, let me try, number one, to see if I can grow grape varietals in, in, in the region, which was successful. Then he said, let me, I believe I could build a brand where the consumers of tomorrow who are starting to drink alcohol for the first time will gravitate towards a, a wine instead of a whiskey or a gin. And let's see where that goes. So, you know, I, I, I watched him. I tried to talk him out of it in 2000. I'm like, Rajiv, you're smart. You went to Stanford. Why would you do this? You know it's not going to work. And then we became good friends. And over the three years, I saw the business grow from nothing to half a million to a million. And that's when I told him, you're onto something. You know, stop uh, sort of uh, running it like a mom and pop shop. I think you need to get a proper factory, bottle it, buy some machinery, stop doing it everything by hand. And, I, and, and that's how the journey started. We spent a year discussing it. He said, well, I need $3 million to do a semi-automated plant. Uh, this is what it's going to look like. We'll buy the piece of land next door. And I just said, let's do it together. It was, a, it was, it was largely him. Uh, he had proven that he could make a good product. And I was just excited by the demographics of India with the number of young people who are going to start working for the first time. Yeah. And I was convinced that wine would no longer be a, a beverage only for the super elite that anyone should be drinking wine. And that was the mission, and he sort of delivered on it. So tell us then about Sula today and, and the success so it's, that it's you know, been. Sula's been fantastic. You know, it's, I invested in 2004. Uh, he's raised a lot of money along the years. He's very profitable. Uh, in December, he went public. It's now a publicly listed company, so anyone listening to the show could actually go and buy shares in Sula. Um, one of the few recent success stories of a new brand creating a category. So to give you a sense, there's no market in the world where any wine brand owns more than 10% of the wine market. Sula is the only wine business anywhere in the world where we have a 60% market share of all wine sold in any country. It's just insane. Wow. So the challenge now is 
if you if you own that much market share, its only way is your market share will go, go, go down. But the reality is, the, the job that Rajiv has set for himself and his competitors is actually to grow the wine industry, uh, because our per capita consumption of wine is one hundredth of hard spirits, and that is not what it should be. And we believe with how the young consumer looks at health and wellness today, there's going to be sort of a less alcohol, less heavy alcohol being consumed. Yeah. There's going to be much more no alcohol, bit more beer, bit more wine in addition to the spirits. And, and what Rajiv's done really well is as I guess in 30 years ago in India, given how conservative it was, women were not encouraged to drink. It wasn't seen as permissible for women to drink. Right. Uh, and as women started working and were being empowered, the first drink he did, he sort of built a brand where it's all right to drink, sort of consciously, uh, but why would you not start with a, a glass of wine? It's yeah. only 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13%, depending on what product you buy. And, and, and it's something, it's more feminine. So he's done something which is sort of capturing the India of tomorrow. And the opportunity for him and the category as a whole is, I think we've got 20 to 30 years of fantastic growth coming up. Wow. Well, listen, it's a fascinating story. And uh, indeed, your philosophy around uh, investing is, is all equally fascinating. Uh, Deepak Shanapuri, Managing Director of DSG Consumer Partners, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. After the break, an executive chair from Singapore. Now, as we come to uh, an end of what has been a truly fantastic week here in Singapore, as is customary at all the CEO retreats for the EY Entrepreneur of the Year, I'm delighted to welcome to the programme the managing partner of EY, Mr. Frank O'Keefe. Hello, Bobby. How are you? Great to see you. Frank, firstly, I want to thank you for a great week um, on behalf of me and my colleagues. I also want to just maybe reflect with you for a second the success that the week has been. Yeah, it's been an amazing success actually, Bobby. And when you think about over a hundred have been in our traveling party for our CEO retreat this year in Singapore. What an amazing place. Like the reason that we're here in Singapore, and I'm delighted that, that Roger and the team chose this as, as the location. It's one of the most competitive economies in the world. Actually, this really is the gateway to Asia. Yeah. It's an incredibly westernized economy and it's full with opportunity and entrepreneurs. Actually, when we think about it, it's very similar in a lot of ways to what's going on in Ireland right now. So in our, as we all know, we've got our 24 finalists here. We've got nearly 66 or 67 alumni that are here. Our Entrepreneur of the Year program is so important for Ireland. And being here this week is so important for the entrepreneurs for a number of reasons. You know, we've 600 entrepreneurs that are now have gone through our program. They generate over 23 billion euros in revenue, they employ 200,000 people. And you might say, well, why are those stats important? The, rea the reality is these entrepreneurs are trailblazers. They're building businesses, not just based in, in Ireland, but all around the world. They're getting to see places like Asia to really think about their business in the future. But the community of entrepreneurs that we have, why we bring them together for a week, is for them to really get to know each other, get to understand each other's business, become either customers or suppliers or part of their supply chain fundamentally what happens is the entrepreneurs are incredibly opportunistic and they build businesses and now they start to build businesses together we've in our program we have all of our entrepreneurs 70 percent of them now work with each other in some shape or form where they didn't know each other before being part of the program 
What that does and the purpose for us in EY is that it generates activity, it generates new businesses and most importantly it generates more and new employment on the island of Ireland. You were somebody personally, Frank, who was very close to the uh, Entrepreneur of the Year programme. You indeed ran the programme for many years yourself. As we kind of reflect 20 plus years on, how has it changed? Well, it's changed dramatically and rightly so. Everything needs to change to continue to grow and get better. Ireland has changed so much, Bobby, in the last 25 years. And we should be incredibly proud of what's been achieved on the island of Ireland from an economic and a, a prosperity, but also from a societal perspective. I think Ireland has really grown up. Actually, it's much more multicultural, it's much more confident. Entrepreneurs are out there, not just on the island of Ireland, but they're out there around the world, building businesses, incredibly strong at building relationships. So Ireland has come on hugely, and to reflect that, the programme, our Entrepreneur of the Year programme needed to come on. And really when you think about the different dynamic and the different mix now of entrepreneurs, very much technology focused. We've got, we've got uh, incredible entrepreneurs in life sciences changing the world. Yeah. It's quite incredible. You've got amazing food companies also, and, and really smart logistics around how they're building operations and building their businesses. So. The program has to shift with that. It has to really learn and understand about how do we bring all of those entrepreneurs together the, from the past uh, and also the present and then continue to think and evolve about how we bring uh, new entrepreneurs into the program going forward. Okay. Well, listen, as I said, it's been a fantastic week. Thank you again, Frank O'Keefe, Managing Partner with EY. Thank you so much, Bobby. Thank you. Now, to finish out with our show today from Singapore, I want to bring you an executive chair with a bit of a difference. Have a listen to this. News Talk's Executive Chair. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. Now, I'm delighted to welcome to the programme a man who has 30 years of experience out here in Singapore. He's Colin MacDonald, and he's the Chief Executive at Fine Grain. Colin, you're very welcome to the programme. Thanks, Bobby. Good to be with you. Now, you have a very interesting story. Uh, a man who came out of UCD in 1989 uh, did uh, eight years um, when you talk about your career. Tell us a little bit about the early days. You got responsibility at a very young age um, in a bank in, in, in Singapore here, isn't that, or was it in Hong Kong? I was, yep, in a, in a branch of a bank in Singapore. So I joined HSBC straight out of college. Uh, my first six months were training in Hong Kong, and the first job that I had with the bank was in uh, Singapore, running a branch on downtown Orchard Road with 25 people reporting to my 22-year-old self, and, and as you say, I was thrown in at the deep end very early. Great way to learn. Um, you did uh, eight years with that organization. You, they moved you to Taiwan, to Bahrain. Then you went back to Hong Kong. But after that, um, well, I think it was when you were in Bahrain, you got a, a bit of a, a property experience and indeed a bar experience, which led on to other things. Tell us about that. Well, an awful lot of things have happened to me during my life, running around the edges of a rugby pitch, but perhaps one of the, one of the uh, worst or best um, was that I was, I was asked to become chairman of Bahrain Rugby Club. Um, and it was at a time when the club was seeking to find new premises. Um, it had been at its current location in Sar Road in Bahrain for 30 years. Uh, we played on sand, uh, so it was a really harsh environment, and we felt there was an opportunity to take the club to a new location. 
So we identified a new site, um, raised money to move the pub by running lots of events in the bar, and there's more about that later perhaps, uh, and uh, ultimately signed a lease and started construction on the new premises before I left Bahrain for Hong Kong. And you never got to see from the new club, but you, you have, it was part of your legacy. I, I'm reliably informed that my name is on the wall, so I'll have to go and take a look one day. Okay, so then it was back to Singapore. Uh, you met your wife and got married, Gillian, um, and you embarked on, a, I suppose, a, a food and beverage uh, enterprise, Father Flanagan's Irish Pub. What a great name. Thank you very much. Yeah. Harder than you would think to name an Irish pub. Uh, so, yeah, Father Flanagan's was named after Flanagan's Furniture in Mount Marion, as it happens. Um, and it was located in a former convent in Singapore. Uh, so we had an opportunity to lease space there, convert it to an Irish pub. We built it with the Irish pub company from Ireland, uh, who came out, uh, fitted out the premises. And uh, we ran that for, for 12 years in that location. Great. And again, you, you, you built quite an empire there with Molly Malone. Uh, I think there was another Father Flanagan's in Melbourne. So you really got into this business, developed it, and, you know, I suppose at the same time was president of the Irish funds, involved in the in the Irish community, the Chamber of Commerce here in Singapore. So you've always been very busy. Yeah, I guess I guess I, I'm a real believer in in uh, positive energy and in community, and um, you know the pubs brought that. Uh, it's one of the aspects of the business that I really liked, um, and you know in order to boost business, boost that sense of community, boost the sense of belonging of our patrons, uh, that's probably what drove me yeah. initially to doing things like starting the St Patrick's Day Parade in Ireland. Uh, I had always been quite involved with the the uh, Chamber of Commerce, and we saw an opportunity to grow that as the Irish community in Singapore was growing and as the level of trade between Ireland and Singapore uh, was expanding. Uh, so in the intervening period, you know, since we set up Father Flanagan's in 1997 um, through to today, um, trade between Ireland and Singapore has absolutely mushroomed. Um, I think it was, uh, you said earlier that uh, the pub business is a great business to get into and another one to get out of uh, and you successfully exited from it but it was while restoring the Fullerton building here in Singapore that you got to work with a local property developer. I think you were there three or four years and you learnt an awful lot from this man and his family. That's right. I, I had an extraordinary opportunity to uh, join Far East Organization, which is Singapore's largest uh, privately owned uh, residential developer. Um, they're a very major residential developer in Singapore um, and, and have constructed you know, many tens of thousands of, of units um, of residential here in Singapore over the last 55 years. The family is the wealthiest family in Singapore as a, as a result of having done that and, and are very highly regarded. I joined them at the beginning um, of a project to convert the former general post office from um, its former use into a five-star hotel, which became the Fullerton Hotel over a three-year period. And during that time, uh, the exposure that I had to um, development, um, um, property development in Asia, uh, hospitality development specifically, hospitality operations globally, was really second to none. I mean, I, I couldn't have been more fortunate to have an opportunity like that. I certainly worked. Uh, it was hard, it was difficult, but, but a great opportunity yeah. in, in your 30s. Which brings us to Fine Grain, um, your, your current company. Um, you say that your, your sweet spot was looking at uh, overlooked and undermanaged real estate uh, to work with your 
their clients. So basically finding a place maybe that was a bit down at heel, adding value, doing it up, reletting it and re-energizing it. Is, was that essentially the model? That's, you've got it spot on, yeah. Um, I think, you know, real estate is often seen as a commodity. You know, people see bricks and mortar and steel and glass. Um, they, what we see and what I've always seen in real estate is that it's experiential and that, uh, that a property is a property and is alive when there are people in it. Um, so often, um, in that former view of a property, people miss the fact that it can be repositioned to meet the needs of somebody uh, who can use it better and put it to a higher and better use. We've always liked to do that. Um, and in Ireland, that's taken us down the route of, of investing in uh, business park facilities, but turning them into what we call an innovation campus. So it's a place where there's uh, education meets multinational um, uh, employers, meets domestic Irish employers, uh, meets great employees. And we seek to grow uh, an innovative community in those spaces. Um, finally, Colin, you told us about uh, Quan Chi, and again, I'd like you to maybe tell us again about it here. It's, there are a couple of key things like playing the long ball. This is effectively the cultural understanding uh, of the Chinese and how they work. Uh, but there were three things that you said, uh, that you work with people that you like, people that you trust, and people that you respect, and you needed all three of the three. Two out of the three wasn't good enough. Maybe explain the logic there. It's a wonderful philosophy. Yeah, and it's one that people often say to me, well, that's not possible. You can get two out of the three, and that's enough. I don't think so. Uh, our experience has been that if you work with somebody that you trust intimately, and you like them very much, but you discover that they can't do the job, you can't respect them to do the job, you're probably going to find yourself liking them just a little less. Yeah. So the objective is either get them to a position where they can do the job or move on yeah. and preserve your relationship. Similarly, if you, if you trust somebody and you respect them, but you don't really like them, you're probably not going to have as much fun. And in work, you should enjoy yourself. Our best innovative stuff gets done when we're having a nice time. Colin McDonald, Chief Executive at Fine Wine. Thanks for letting us into your world. Uh, 30 years out here now, back in Ireland and indeed Singapore. You've done really, really stellar work and congratulations on all you've achieved. Thank you very much, Bobby. A pleasure. So that's it now for our special show from Singapore, where we've been all week for the EY Entrepreneur of the Year CEO Retreat. A huge thanks to everyone at EY for what was a wonderful week. Special thanks to Ema McCran and Anne-Marie Butler. A big thanks also to my producer and indeed travelling companion, Mr. John Fardy. Thanks also to Cormac and Matthew at Loose Horse, to Ian Kern from the Irish Times. Thanks to Jack McDonald back at base. Also to Stephen McLoon on sound. Back to normal next week. So goodbye from Singapore and thanks a million for listening. Down to Business with Bobby Kerr. Brought to you by Bank of Ireland. Saturday morning at 11 on News Talk.